Well, you can turn to Matthew 7. Um, one other uh, announcement before we get into the message. Um, starting in January, uh, I want us as a church to do something for uh, marriages in general, some type of, I'm not sure, a small group or maybe depending on how many people show up, maybe we need to do it here. But what I'm really looking for right now, because it's only October, is people who'd be willing to help facilitate that. So I'm, I'm looking for couples. I don't care if you think you got a great marriage or a sorry one. That doesn't matter. I'm just looking for folks who would be willing to facilitate either a small group or something here, maybe on a Sunday night or a Wednesday night, um, to help us enhance our marriages. Most likely what we'll do is there's some good resources out there. We'll do something where we show a, a, a DVD and then we'll, it'll, there'll be some discussion questions. I don't know if we'll do small groups or just um, people talking to their spouses, but that would be my hope. We just need a few couples, two or three, who'd be willing to do that, either host people in your home or we'll pull something together here. And again, you don't, I'm not asking you to teach and I'm not asking you to hold yourself up and say, if you guys will be like us, then everything will be okay. That's not what I'm looking for. I'm just looking for folks who will be willing to say, I can push play and I'll show up for six to eight weeks and make sure that the lights are on and the heat's on and that type of thing. So it's a little more than that, but you get what I'm saying. So if you're interested in helping out with that, if you'd see me or Kim. Kim, where are you? Are you back there. Uh, see one of us and let us know, and I'll get together with all of you guys at some point, and we'll see what we need to do and see what you guys uh, want to share. So that's marriage deal. Um, I'd love to hear in the next two weeks. It'll take a little bit of time to pull the thing together, and I don't want to get too close to Christmas, and then you lose all that time. So um, let me know in the next couple of weeks, and we'll look to start this thing probably the second or third week in January. Um, for the next seven weeks between now and Thanksgiving, maybe it's the Sunday after Thanksgiving, we're going to look at the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Uh, it's whether or not people are Christians or not, whether or not they've ever even read the Bible, you've heard stuff from the Sermon on the Mount. It's one of the most quoted uh, sermons in history. Most people would say it's, if you want to know what good ethics is, you read Matthew 5 through 7. It's the it's top shelf in terms of how we should live and how we should treat other people. And over the next seven weeks, us and the kids, actually, we're going to do the same thing. We're going to look at the same sections of Scripture, and we're going to talk about what, it, what does it mean and how do you do that. And I don't know if you all remember, I think it was a couple of years ago. This is kind of a YouTube clip. Now Barack Obama kind of made a statement that basically said, we can't live the Sermon on the Mount is what he was saying, and he was saying, as a country, we can't do that. You can't live up to this ideal. I'm not saying anything about him one way or the other, but that's something that he said that kind of brought this whole idea of, can we do this stuff? Really, it says, this is the thing that says, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Okay, we can all come in and look like pirates next week. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. If somebody asks you to go one mile, go two. If Someone hits you on the right cheek, you give them your left. I mean, seriously, I mean, can you do that? Is any that those are the things we're going to look at over the next six or seven weeks? And there've been many people, strong Christians, who would say, "No, that you you can't do this. This stuff is you've got to understand what Jesus is trying to say here. And if you actually try to live this stuff out, you're going to be a doormat 
and it's not going to work very well. So we're going to look at this over the next six or seven weeks. We're actually going to start at the end. Did any of y'all read the last chapter before you read the beginning of the book? Raise your hand. Two, y'all are like y'all are breaking the rules. You're like this when you're raising your hand. So nobody will see that it's not a sin to read the last chapter first. You bought the book. You can do whatever you want with it. You can read. Anybody want to know the end of the movie before they see the movie? A few. A few. Well, we're going to start at the end of the sermon so you can see why what we're doing has some, hopefully, value and impact in your life. So this is um, Matthew 7. We're going to walk through about 14 or 15 verses, just kind of a chunk at a time, starting in verse 13. Everything that we read, this is really the conclusion of this Sermon on the Mount. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. That's, there's only two commands in this whole section we're going to look at, and that uh, verse 13 is the first one, enter through the narrow gate. So that's a command, Jesus says, you need to enter through the narrow gate, and then he's telling us why. We need to enter through the narrow gate because the way that leads to destruction is wide and broad. That's kind of, you can understand that as easy. And narrow is the way that leads to life, and you can understand that as difficult. And uh, if I grew up in church. I've been going to church since I was six or so, and I've heard this before. And my first thought every time I hear this is, why? Why? Why, why do you make the way to life narrow and the way to destruction broad? That just... If you want people to find life, then why don't you make it easy? Why do you have to make it difficult? This seems to say that you're making it hard on people, which I don't get. If you're this, you're this loving God and God so loved the world, blah, 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 then how come it's a narrow road that leads to life and only a few find it, and it's a broad road that leads to destruction and a lot of people find it? And that's what you say here. So I've been thinking about that and I had a couple of thoughts. I don't know if you think that way or not, but... This idea that the, the way that leads to destruction is broad, and I would say, again, just think in your mind, easy. It's easy to find that road. And narrow is the way that leads to heaven. Really, the thought behind that is it's difficult to find that road. So, um, I, I was, I don't, have any of y'all ever been in a foreign airport? Th- this is the picture that's in my mind is, I'm in a foreign airport, and I land in... Tokyo, and I don't know a lick of Japanese, and their things don't even look like, their letters don't even look like our letters, so I can't figure any of it out. And i got to get to my hotel, and there are all these guys who are trying to be helpful, who are speaking to me, and yelling at me in Japanese, saying they can take me wherever I want to go, and I don't even know where I want to go, and they can't read the English on my deal, and I can't read the Japanese on their deal, and we're not, we're born that way. We're not just born separated from God, we're born lost. Luke 15, there's three parables, and the key in every one of them, the word is lost. It's lost sheep, lost son, lost coin. We're not just separated, we're lost. And we can't find our way. We need somebody to help direct us to the hotel room. We need somebody, we need a guide to take us where we want to go. The reason the way is narrow is because there's only one guy that knows the way. And it's Jesus. Nobody else knows the way. Jesus in John 14, 6 says, He is the way. The reason it's narrow is because it's just one guy. Not because God's a jerk, not because he's mean, not because he's trying to keep most people out. 
It's because there's only one person who knows the way. One of the things about God that we don't get because we think we're really smart is we couldn't figure out anything about God unless He first revealed that to us. That's part of what it means for God to be holy. He's so different from us, we can't, based on our own intellect and intuition and figuring things out, we don't get to God. If you look at some of the cults throughout history, you see what happens when people try to figure out who God is. They wind up drinking a lot of Kool-Aid. You can't figure it out. You, we, we're not smart enough. It would be like those of you that have fish, your fish trying to figure you out. That's, it's the same thing. He is so different from us based on... We, we're not going to work out who God is. Nobody comes up with this stuff on their own. Who comes up with God becoming a man and living and dying and rising again to make a way for us to be with God? Nobody. So the reason the way is narrow is because there's only one guy who's, who can show us how to get to our hotel room. There are lots of guys who'll try to try, who want to try. Some of them are good-hearted and some of them are wicked. But it doesn't matter because they don't know the way. It doesn't matter how sincerely somebody believes something. If what they believe is wrong, the best you can say is they're sincerely wrong. That's it. The depth of your commitment does not have anything to do with the truth of what you're saying. You can sincerely believe a lie. It's still a lie. So this is not necessarily about the character of all these guys who are trying to get me into the cab. It's about the fact that they just don't know. And Jesus is the only one who does know. We're not just born separated, we're born lost. And we need a guide. And Jesus is the only one that knows the way. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree can't bear bad fruit, and a bad tree can't bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. So Jesus has just said that the way that leads to destruction is broad. It's easy. Lots of people can find that. There's lots of guys that are trying to get you in their car. Some of them, again, are good-hearted. Some are bad-hearted. Some are just misguided. What that doesn't matter. They don't know the way. You're getting in the car with somebody that does not know how to get you to your hotel room. Narrow is the way that leads to life. There's one guy that can get you to your hotel room, and it's Jesus. He's it. And then so people are probably thinking, well, how do we find this narrow way? There's a broad way that's easy. Well, okay, well, that's, that's where most of us are going to go. We're going to go the easy way. How do we find this narrow way that can be difficult to find? And Jesus says, this is the second command. Watch out for false prophets. What he's saying is, Again, you're in the airport. There's lots of guys yelling at you, trying to get your attention, saying they can get you wherever you want to go. And they look good on the outside, but inwardly, they're going to they're gonna eat you up. They're trying to take advantage of you. They're going to rip you off. They look good on the outside. Sheep. Inside, they're wicked. They're wolves. So the people are... Well, what do we do about that? I don't know the way. There's only one way. It's difficult to find. I'm not going to be able to find it on my own. And now you're telling me that a lot of the people who are trying to show me the way are actually trying to destroy me. It's not a pretty picture for me in the airport. All these guys, I don't know how to get to the hotel. All these guys say they can get me there. And you're saying most of them can't. 
They're false prophets. They can't get me where I need to go. So how am I supposed to know if they all look the same? They're all wearing the same hat and they all got a taxi. How am I supposed to know the difference between the good guys and the bad guys? How am I supposed to know the guys that are going to get me to Jesus to the hotel room and the guys that are going to take me into a back alley and steal my money? And he says this, by their fruit you will recognize them. And then he does all this stuff about fruit. And basically what he's saying is apple trees produce apples. Apple trees don't produce pears. You know a tree is an apple tree if you see apples on the branches. And you know a tree is a pear tree if you see pears on the branches and bananas and oranges and you get the picture. You know a tree by its fruit. Pear trees don't produce apples. They, they don't. That makes it an apple tree. That's how you know. You don't have to look at the bark. You don't have to look at... You just look at the fruit. And the same thing is true, he's saying, with people. Just look at the fruit. Good trees produce good fruit. Good trees cannot produce bad fruit. You can't do it. And bad trees cannot produce good fruit. You can't do it. We've talked before. We live out of our heart. That's Proverbs 4.23. We live out of our heart. So that's kind of... That's the trunk. That's what we live out of. And what's in there comes out in fruit. That's just the way it is. You can kind of hide it and mask it for a little bit, but ultimately what's in here is going to come out here. Apple trees produce apples. That's what happens. And good people produce good fruit. And bad people produce bad fruit. And angry people produce angry fruit. And patient people produce patient fruit. That's, that's the way it works. And so he's saying, well, that's how you'll know who the, good, who the good gods are and who the bad gods are. You'll know by their fruit. Great. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. So that's the next question. We've got, okay, we're looking for the narrow road. Lots of guys are going to take us astray, but it's hard to figure out who's who because they all look the same. So judging by their fruit, great. Well, what, what fruit? What are we supposed to be judging them by? What, what, what is this fruit that we're supposed to be weighing? And Jesus says it's not maybe what we would think. It has nothing to do with prophesying in your name, that's like the preaching or whatever, driving out demons in your name, performing miracles. It's not that. That's not the fruit. The supernatural stuff, that's not the fruit that we're supposed to judge people by. You may or may not know this, but just about every miracle that you can see in a Christian setting, you can also see in a non-Christian setting. A miracle is basically a supernatural event that runs contrary to the laws of nature. Dead people stay dead. That's a law of nature. That's how God set, thing up, th- set things up. If someone rises from the dead, well, that's a miracle because that, that, that's, a, that's uh, an event that happens contrary to the laws of nature. Broken legs take six weeks to heal. That's the way God set things up. If a broken leg is healed instantly, well, that's a miracle. Because that's not, that's an event that happens contrary to the laws of nature. You, you get that. It's, a miracle is basically just a display of supernatural power. But there's two teams that have supernatural power. There's the good team and there's the bad team. And just because you see or I see a display of supernatural power doesn't mean it came from the good team. Now, the bad team doesn't have nearly as much power as the good team. God's power is infinite and absolute. Satan's is limited. 
and dependent on what God has given him. It's not Star Wars where there's a dark side and a whatever light side and they're equal and they're battle. That's not it. There's, you know, a man and a mosquito. That's more what it looks like. But the mosquito does have some supernatural power. And so just because there is... What Jesus is saying is you can't just trust that. You can't just look for supernatural signs and wonders. People will say, listen, look at all this great stuff that I've done. And Jesus is going to say, I know who you are. Who, who are you? The fruit that we're looking at, Jesus says, it's not, it's not just, it's not miracle stuff. It's something else. That's a word of warning, I think, to all of us. We talked this summer, remember we went through the, we trudged through Revelation in the end times. And one of the things that we looked at was in the end times, there's going to be a whole lot of counterfeit everything including counterfeit signs and wonders. You can't just look at that. The only thing a miracle will tell you is that there's been some supernatural power released. It doesn't tell you what the source of that supernatural power is. Somebody would say, why would the devil who hates people ever heal somebody? And I would say, why would he not? If healing somebody's broken leg, if that gets him somebody's soul, that's a pretty good trade to me. If in performing some counterfeit miracle, if that allows him to pull people away from Jesus, well, why not do that? So not, none of that's to scare you. That's just whatever. So Jesus says fruit, but it's not necessarily the fruit that you would think. We're not looking for supernatural fruit. Therefore, and this is, this is the main point for the day, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Rain came down, streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. So, again, we're lost, we're separated, we need to get to the hotel room. We need somebody to show us the way. The way is hard to find. Lots of guys are, are taking us the wrong direction. How do we figure out who it is? You judge them by their fruit. But it's not just this supernatural stuff. It's this. Knowing and doing the word of God. It's doing the instructions of Jesus. Jesus says earlier in verse 21, Only he who does the will of my Father is in heaven will enter the kingdom of God. The same thing with this idea of finding the way. It's all, there's kind of the same picture is running throughout, which is doing the words of Jesus. And that's what we're going to spend the next seven weeks talking about. What does it mean for us to actually do the words of Jesus? What does that look like? People say, and the reason we, we're doing the Sermon on the Mount, one of the main reasons is people say you can't do it. So that's where we're going to start. This to me is, it, it, these three chapters encapsulate a lot of Jesus' teachings for how we need to relate to each other. It's practical, it's nitty-gritty, it's day-to-day. And so that's where we're going to start. If, if we can't do this, then I'm not sure what we can do. All we have is some fluffy stuff about loving, but it doesn't have any impact on the way that we live. And what Jesus is saying is that's what I'm looking for. There's two guys, and they both built a house. And kind of the pictures, there's this floodplain in this area where Jesus is talking about, and one guy just built on the sand, 
He just he didn't dig down. The other guy dug down to bedrock. And then every year this river floods. And when it does, the house that's built on the sand gets swept away. You've all seen pictures of that. You know what that looks like. And the house where the guy dug down and built on the rock, his house stands. The thing, it's the same stuff that happens to each guy. Their, their houses are right next to each other. And the same stuff happens. If you go through and read, it's a word-for-word, word, exact same description. Storms, what does it say? Rain came down, streams rose, and winds blew. That happens to both houses. One of them stands up, one of them doesn't. The stuff that we're talking about doesn't mean that somehow we're exempt from the struggles of life. We all, the stock market crashed for everybody this week. Just because you built your house on the rock doesn't mean that somehow your portfolio didn't get slammed. It just means your life didn't get swept away because your life wasn't built on that. If your life was built on that, then that's, you got swept away this week. It doesn't mean that whoever gets elected is going to be president for all of us. And whoever they put to be on the Supreme Court is going to make laws for all of us. It doesn't matter whether th- those things don't change. What does change is how those things affect us. If that's what my house is built on, if my house is built on the fact that I think a political solution is going to solve our nation's problems, well, if, I don't, if, if storms come, then my house is getting swept away. Or that there's a legal solution to our nation's problems, well, when a storm comes, my house gets swept away. But if I'm built on the rock, then no matter what happens with that stuff, the storm's still going to come. It just doesn't sweep my house away, and the house is your life. That's the metaphor. Your house is your life. Is your life built on the rock? That's the question. And that's what we're going to look at over the next six weeks. Is your house built on the rock? It's a yes or a no. Yes or no, my house is built on the rock. Yes or no, my marriage is built on the rock. Yes or no, my business is built on the rock. Yes or no, my family is built on the rock. That's it. It's yes or no. And if the answer is no, this is what you need to realize. It's not just that you're going to miss something in the future, although I would say you're going to miss something in the future because Jesus says the guys who get into the kingdom of heaven are the guys who are doing the will of God. So if you're not doing that, you're missing something. You might have thought your ticket got punched sometime, but if you're not doing the will of God, I would say I'm not sure what really happened in here, in your heart. It's not just that. It's that your house will be swept away here. Jesus doesn't say build on the rock because he's a jerk. Jesus says build on the rock because it's the only sure foundation. Everything else gets swept away. If you want to live life well, you have to build on the rock. It's not just a matter of your eternal destination. It's your present, your earthly life depends on it. Because the storms are going to come for both guys. The storms come for both guys, the winds blow for both guys, the rain comes down for both guys. The dude who built on the sand, he lost everything. The guy who built on the rock didn't. So this is not just a matter of, this isn't just kind of churchy, where are you going to heaven stuff. This is how are you living here stuff. What Jesus is saying is that's not just what gets you in, that's also what keeps you while you're here. We're gonna, we, we tried to think of some different things to do to help, I don't know, maybe make the point and help us actually do this stuff. And this is what we came up with. We have a pile of rocks, and I'm actually going to hit everybody who has a difficult time. I'm not joking. I gotta, there's more back there. 
So we've got enough. Everybody gets a rock, and you're going to bring it to church every week. And if you can't tell me some area where you say, yeah, I've lived on the rock this week, I'm going to take the rock, and I'm going to smash one of your fingers. <laughs> we have six weeks, so the worst you can do is you'll wind up with four fingers left. Three fingers and a thumb, which you can do a lot with that. This is what we're going to do. In the Old Testament, when God met with His people, a lot of times they set up a memorial, a pile of rocks. And I don't know what it looked like. I don't know if it looked like that or if it was a tower. I don't know if there were bigger rocks or small. I don't know. But for us, that's what they did. They set up a pile of rocks. Genesis 35, 14 and 15 says, Jacob set up a stone pillar at the place where God had talked with him and he poured out a drink offering on it. He also poured oil on it. Jacob called the place where God had talked with him Bethel. Joshua 4, 6 through 10 um, this is when the Israelites are about to cross the Jordan River. Go over before the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan. Each one of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder according to the number of tribes. That's 12 guys, not all, you know, one million of them, just 12 of them. To serve as a sign among you. In the future, when your children ask, what do these stones mean? Tell them the flow of the Jordan was cut off between the ark of the covenant of the Lord, or before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. Joshua 24 on that day, Joshua made a covenant for the people, and there at Shechem he drew up for them decrees and laws. And Joshua recorded these things in the book of the law of God. He took a large stone and set it there under the oak near the place of the Lord. See, he said to, this, to, to all the people, this stone will be a witness against us. 1 Samuel 7, 7 through 12 um, says, When the Philistines heard Israel had attacked this group, they were coming to attack Israel. Samuel told the people, don't stop crying out to the Lord for us, that he may rescue us from the hand of the Philistines. Um, he offers a sacrifice. It says, um, when, while Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offerings, the Philistines drew near to engage in battle. But that day the Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into a panic that they were routed before the Israelites. The men of Israel rushed out and took them. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shin. He named it Ebenezer saying, thus far the Lord has helped. That's just a few examples of when God worked in the lives of his people, they set up a memorial, said, we're going to remember what he did. Now, I don't know why they chose rocks, I guess because they're sturdy and they don't erode and they're always going to be there and you can take your kids back and they see a pile of rocks and the first question is, well, why is there a pile of rocks? And they say, well, this is what God did for your dad or for your granddad or for your great-granddad. Now, I don't want us walking around with rocks and every time you do something which is built which is living your life on the rock every time you do the words of Jesus when you choose to forgive your wife I don't necessarily want you to put a rock on the bed or you know that that wouldn't work very well for a lot of us so this is what we're going to do we have these journals if you guys the guys that help with communion or whoever's passing those things out I don't know who's passing those things out who's passing those things out me whoever's passing those things out pass them out Flawless execution, yet again. That's my fault. We've got these journals that we're passing out. Someone is going to give you one. I want you to take it. It's yours. And what I want you to, and this is not a diary. I'm not asking you to pour out your feelings and, you know, that's not what this is. This is your rock. This is where I want, over the next seven weeks, you to begin to create a testimony of you living the words of Jesus. I want, at the end of seven weeks, I want you to have a pile of rocks where you can look back and say that you've done it. And rather, again, than carrying around a pile of rocks, I want you to write it down. And it, you, don't have to give, you don't have to cry. 
It doesn't have to be long. You're not being graded. It can be three words. I forgave her. That's it. That's enough. I just want you to begin to keep a record so you will know if you're living on sand or living on a rock. A lot of us think we're living on a rock. And then in six weeks, if you're keeping track, you'll look back and say, you know what, I did not make one decision based on the truth that Jesus teaches. Not one. I just did what I do. And the things that I did, some of them worked out and some of them did it, whatever. I want you to write down when you're consciously saying, I'm making this decision because it is in obedience to what this thing says. My fear is not that anybody in this room is a false prophet. None of you guys are in the airport trying to lead people away. That's not my fear for us as a body and really for the church and our community is that there's a whole lot of us who've built on sand. A lot of us have spent 20 plus years in church. A lot of us have heard literally weeks worth of sermons. You've got Bible study books lined up in your bookshelf that you've done. And retreat t-shirts from 1987 on. Like, we've got that stuff. But we're not doing that stuff. It hasn't influenced the decisions that we make day to day. It hasn't influenced the way you talk to your mom. And it hasn't influenced the way you do your job. And it hasn't influenced the way I relate to the people on this square. It's just words. And all I've done is built my house on the sand. I've got a lot of information. I know a lot of stuff. But none of it has translated into wisdom for me. I'm still a fool. I know a lot of stuff. I'm just not living it. And so that makes me a fool. And in order for me to be wise, I have to start doing it. And so that's what these journals are for. You're not turning it back into me, so don't worry about that. Just, I want you to do that. And every week I'm going to ask. I'm going to remind you. If you've got testimonies, I would love to hear them. My desire at the end of this thing is that we would have, corporately, a big old mountain of rocks. A big testimony of ways all of us, big and small, have chosen to live on the rock. Now, every week moving forward, there's going to be something real concrete you can do because we're going to look at the Beatitudes and all these different passages. You can ask, what am I supposed to do this week? Easy. Just take those things up on the wall. That summarizes everything Jesus said. And everything we're going to look at is just a uh, further, it's, it's deeper. It's just a deeper level of detail of these three things. So I would say this week, ask the Lord, what does it look like for me to love God? What does it look like for me to love other people? And start writing down when you actually make a decision, do something in your life concretely, a place where you would set up a rock and say, this is where God has met me. Y'all understand that? Are you going to do it? Okay. That's what I want to hear. Okay, I'm going to pray. And then, uh, Bo, you can come up. We'll do, uh, some of y'all got a scat. I'm going to